So Rachel, I was reading The Trial of Magneto. As one does. And it got me thinking about Zorn. Which one? There's more than one? There's two, not counting future brotherhood Jean Grey, although she only really ever wore the mask. She wasn't really Zorn. Which one's Magneto? None of them. Dude, no. Magneto created the identity of Zorn as a means to infiltrate the Xavier School, then got hooked on Kick, tried to destroy New York, and killed Jean Grey before Wolverine killed him. I remember this distinctly. Oh yeah, I mean, that all totally happened. It just wasn't Magneto. How'd they spin that one? First of all, when Xavier went to bury Zorn, who everyone still thought was Magneto on Genosha, he then snuck off to meet up with the real Magneto. Okay, so who was Zorn then? He was Zorn. Kuan Yin Zorn, anyway. And he had a star on his head. Like, for real. Yep. So why'd he pretend to be Magneto? Well, he had been using a ton of kick, which later turned out to be everyone's favorite sentient space bacteria, John Sublime, and inhaling a lot of Sublime will mess with your head pretty hard. How'd they work that out? Oh, his brother told them. I thought Sublime had a sister. No, no, not Sublime's. Quan Yin Zorn's brother, Shen Zorn. Does he have a star on his head, too? Oh, no. Shen Zorn had a black hole. Ouch. Which was also a portal to the Mojoverse. What?! I'm Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 50th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. 50th episode, huh? Dang! How'd that happen? I mean, there's a lot of X-Men, man. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, when we started this, I didn't think we'd still be going strong this far into X-Men and this far into our, you know, new podcasting career. So we went back and forth on what to do for this episode, and we ultimately decided, you know, we're actually at a point in the story that f- that works really well to wrap up the first period. Yeah, it's such a good capstone to really actually kind of what I think of as the, s- the second period of Claremont's X-Men run. You know, there's the early stuff through maybe the Dark Phoenix saga, and then there's the stuff leading up to issue 200, which is a big issue. It's the trial of Magneto. Yeah, and uh, we already covered sort of the concurrent New Mutants run. That really ended with a karma storyline. The issues we're covering today sort of bridge the Asgardian Wars. So basically, we'll be going up to 199, which is right before the Asgardian Wars, and then 200 is right after and is sort of the big finale. Now, we're technically covering 196 through 200. But we're not actually going to be looking at all of those today. We're going to be looking at 196. 197 we actually have already covered. That was in episode 38. So we're just going to touch on a couple things in that. 198 is Life, Death 2. You can listen to us talk about that in episode 45. And then again, that leaves uh, 199 and 200. Yeah, so let's talk about what's going on contextually in the X universe right now. X-Men and Alpha Flight has happened. So this is a group of X-Men missing their two primary leaders. Um, Storm is away traveling in Africa. Cyclops is in Alaska with Madeline Pryor, or I guess Madeline Summers now, who is pregnant. And so the X-Men have been operating without them. Uh, Nightcrawler's been the official leader for a while, but that's sort of been going okay. Xavier's been taking a more active role here and there. Kitty Pride has even been leading the team now and then. And a really important shift is that mutants are now actively very much hated and feared. That's rhetoric that's been around since the Silver Age, but it's never really been the case until very recently. Part of that is that Dazzler the movie set up a bunch of of anti-mutant bigotry. There's a robot from the future named Nimrod who's been serving humanity and fighting a lot of mutants. There was Thunderbird's attempted revenge on Xavier, which I think was what really triggered that shift. Yeah, that made the X-Men look very much like outlaws, and we're going to see more of that happen in this arc. So let's talk about who's with the X-Men at present. Well, someone who's with the X-Men right now who is sort of a surprising new addition since Secret Wars 2 is Magneto. 
Yeah, so uh, Professor Xavier, he's been in bad shape ever since he got mugged and technically killed and resurrected. When he detected that the Beyonder was back on Earth after the first Secret Wars, he got in touch with Magneto and said, Hey, you know, I know we've been enemies a lot, but I really need some help. Could you do me a solid and uh, help me out against this cosmic force? And Magneto, who was basically shacking up on Octopus Time with Lee Forrester, was like, Yeah, you know, sure. I'll go rip the roof off something. But as far as the X-Men themselves, like we said, Nightcrawler's been leading them, but he's really been very much out of the spotlight. The book hasn't been focusing on him very much at all lately. I kind of want to put leading in scare quotes here, because Nightcrawler is, even when he's nominally in charge of the X-Men, he's really not a leader. He's not good at solid decision-making, he's not good at big-picture stuff, and he's really not good at telling people things they don't want to hear. So while he's nominally the team leader, honestly, I think the majority of the, st- of the strategy and, and essential decision-making has been falling in the lap of maybe the least, at least age-wise, qualified member, Kitty Pride. Right, and so she's on the team. She's now going by Shadowcat. Finally. We, of course, have Colossus and Wolverine. Rogue's been on the team for a little while now, and I guess one of the newer members of the team is Rachel Summers, the alternate future daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey. Which everyone knows except Cyclops. And I guess Jean, because she's dead at the time, but you know. So I vote we just uh, die right into all of what happens in this arc. In X-Men 196, we've got two things propelling the plot. The first is Secret Wars 2. We mentioned when we talked about this that it is going to intersect and cross over with X-Men forever. For really most of the Marvel Universe, forever. Yeah, but we're not, we, don't, we don't have to explain that. <laughs> Thankfully. And in this case, what's going on is that Rachel Summers is able to sense the Beyonder as he's he's going around doing his Beyondery stuff and exploring the world, and she's really unsettled by him because he's this massive cosmic force. And a lot of the time, no one else can see him, so it kind of she kind of looks crazy. And she actually met up with him briefly, or at least sensed him more directly, in Secret Wars 2, number one. So this is not without some Beyonder Rachel Summers precedent. Meanwhile, another X-Man is also having some Beyonder issues, and that is Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler is a devout Catholic, he's very religious, and his faith is very important to his identity. He's just encountered an omnipotent super being. As much as the X-Men have encountered some very powerful stuff before, not least of all the Phoenix Force, the Beyonder is really the closest to what Nightcrawler thinks of as God. And so he teleports into Father Michael Bowen's church, which you may remember from the Cloak and Dagger arc of New Mutants. Right, he's Dagger's uncle. To basically say, hey, I need some spiritual counseling, and also, you know, I'm just going to teleport right in your face, dude. Yeah, I kind of imagine that Father Bowen, ever since that, that New Mutants story, has just been thinking, God, I should I should have become a sanitation worker, or a teacher, or a doctor, or you know, anything that doesn't involve superheroes teleporting into my kitchen in the middle of the fucking night to have existential crises. Yeah, so Nightcrawler has seen this being that's essentially God, but has been really not behaving in a very benevolently divine fashion. Uh, the Beyonder's behavior has thus far been very arbitrary and capricious and in many ways extremely destructive. Now, these are both good character moments, but they don't actually matter, so you can forget them for the rest of the episode if you want. I try to forget the Beyonder whenever he's not directly relevant. I will say, though, I mean, given that Secret Wars 2 was a thing and all the writers of the Marvel Universe were being forced to interact with it, occasionally you can pull something cool out of that. And this, this Nightcrawler bit, I think it's a good character moment. I think it really does contribute to the character and the story. Agreed. Honestly, I think these are actually pretty good examples of the best and worst of integrating it into stories, because the Rachel Summer stuff just feels gratuitous and pointless, and the Nightcrawler stuff feels like a really poignant, really good aside. Beyond your stuff aside, there is sort of an A-plot to this issue. And the A-plot involves a murder mystery. As you may recall, Professor X was beaten nearly to death around the holidays by students from his psych class. He does not know that. And so he's sitting in class one day and telepathically overhears someone in his class planning a murder. 
And now his powers at this point are not doing so hot uh, because of the aforementioned death and resurrection. And he's actually had to take some drugs to block his powers since he doesn't have the control over them he used to and he would otherwise be overwhelmed by all the thoughts that surround him. Well, and it's also pretty heavily insinuated that using his powers is seriously injuring him. Like, making his recovery slower, it might actually be harming him. He figures, all right, well, let me get the X-Men together and maybe they can figure this out and we can prevent someone from dying. And meanwhile, let me lie egregiously to them about why I can't use my powers because he hasn't told them he's still messed up and he's hell-bent on hiding it from them because if there's anything professor xavier loves it's a secret that's gonna screw his kids over later yeah so they all meet up including with magneto and lee forrester who's been hanging out with him yeah she and magneto are are an item right now xavier reveals what's going on and the x-men go off to investigate well he reveals that there is a murderer in his class and he can't pick them out telepathically and what's decided is that kitty who's taking classes at the college anyway or at least is qualified to is gonna, you know, buddy up with these kids and so, uh, got any plans for the weekend? Any good murders going on? But before then, the rest of the X-Men are gonna be searching town as well, and that includes a scene I really like with Rogue and Rachel Summers flying through the town. So they find a kid who is vandalizing a wall and is set upon by muggers. They save the kid, and they discover that what he's been painting on the wall is anti-mutant rhetoric. Yeah, something along the lines of Nimrod number one, muties die. And yeah, Rachel is just getting more and more frustrated, which is certainly a trend we've seen with her since she came to the present day. Just figuring, you know, hey, this timeline is supposed to be so much better, but I can see the seeds of where I come from happening here. Right, the same progression, the same rise of rabid anti-mutant sentiment that led to the dystopian world she grew up in. So the rest of the X-Men are searching around, and yeah, Kitty does stumble upon these students that she realizes are in fact the murderers. We've also seen in the background these mysterious people set a bomb in what appears to be Professor Xavier's office. They are just ridiculously over-equipped. I want to know where college students get access to this kind of technology. Okay, so the kind of technology you're referring to, Rachel, that's the Psy Scream. And I looked it up, and we've actually seen a Psy Scream before, Psy being PSI, of course. It's a brood weapon, right? It's a brood weapon. Yeah, the first time the brood showed up, they, they were using that in battle. So are the brood now, like, advertising these in the classified pages? I think maybe, you know, their spaceship broke down after the fight with the X-Men. They're kind of down on their luck. They're just trying to sell off all their old stuff to afford gas to get back to brood world are you violent anti-mutant paramilitary we can help they've also got chloroform is it actually as easy to buy chloroform as it is in comics and on tv uh the brood threw it in for free it's like the jinsu knives point being they do manage to incapacitate kitty before she's able to phase away now rachel summers uh senses that kitty is in pain and in danger and she kind of freaks out goes into full-on powered up psychic mode and blasts into the room that they're in. Well, she also realizes she's going to have to track Kitty down, and this is something that has been a running difficulty for her, because in her future, she was forced to be something called a hound. She was a mutant who tracked other mutants to be caught and killed. It's kind of the equivalent of Storm's claustrophobia, which is a little story thing that's very easy to throw in that just adds in like a character trait the writer wants to remind us of. So she ends up busting in, takes out the other students, I believe takes out the size screen before it goes off. No, she's hit by the size screen, and that's the problem. That sends her into her personal equivalent of a berserker rage, and she is about to kill these college kids. And that's when somebody shows up to stop her who is not someone we would have expected, and that is Magneto. I think we're going to go ahead and just read the dialogue from this scene because... This parallel, Rachel Summers and Magneto in this relationship, is what a lot of the rest of this arc is going to be based around, and something that's built up and played off really well and in really interesting ways. So one of the assassin students uh, shoots Rachel, and she stops the bullet and is about to turn it around and put it through his head, at which point it stops in the air, and we find out that it's Magneto who says, 
I am the master of magnetism, a mutant. Mine is the power that holds the shell at bay, even as the young lady struggles with all her considerable might to push it onwards. Rachel, I beg you, forbear. It's no less than they would cheerfully have done to us, Magneto. No more than they deserve. That was once what I believed, and see what it has achieved. I am hunted the world over. My name has become almost a synonym for madness and evil. My children have disowned me. I am as feared, Rachel, as I am hated. And worst of all, those whose lives I sought to safeguard, whose bright future to ensure, are no better off. Indeed, I have probably made their existence far worse. You don't understand. These scum beat the professor like an animal. These are the killers he sent us to find, unaware that he was the victim. I see the thoughts and memories in their minds. They'd have murdered Kitty, too, if I hadn't prevented it. There's no remorse in them, no pity. We're muties. We're not real people. We're inhuman, alien things. Theirs is a hatred born of ignorance and fear. Will you now, by your actions, justify that fear and the hate? What he ultimately says to her is basically, okay, look, you're an adult. If you want to kill them, I'm not going to stop you. She thinks about it and says, fine. I don't like it, but fine. I may never forgive you for this. That is a really critical shift, and it's the first time I think that we get a really, really close glimpse of what Magneto has been becoming. Magneto is, I think, the best example from this era of a character growing personally. This arc, it's, it's all about that, and it's going to come to a head in number 200. So that wraps up 196. 197 is an arcade story, and we covered that in episode 38. So if you want the details of that, you can go back to that episode. The salient details here are... That Kitty and Colossus basically work things out. They split quite a while ago. Things have been really awkward between them since. This is finally Colossus getting over it, and Kitty sort of making peace herself. The second thing is a phone call that Scott Summers gets from Moira McTaggart. Now, Scott and Madeline are back in Alaska at this point, but Moira calls to basically say, look, the professor and the X-Men need him. And Madeline wakes up to him packing. And he explains, you know, he has to head out there to help Xavier. And she says, well, okay, but just remember, you know, you have made your choice between the X-Men and me, and you chose me. That's what this marriage means. This moment, more than any other individual point, is the beginning of the end for Scott and Madeline. I would agree. This is kind of the tipping point, which is damn unfortunate because they were such a good couple. Yeah, because Madeline is awesome. And something she mentions that I think is worth looking at, she's given up her career as a pilot for this. I think the insinuation pretty heavily is that she's given it up specifically because being married to an active superhero kind of limits your ability to hold down a predictable and steady job. In fact, it does, especially when you keep running into, you know, sharks and octopi and despair. Well, and getting yanked into alternate dimensions and stuff like that. Plus, the idea that specifically her rival in this isn't, you know, the memory of Gene or later even the reality of Gene, but the X-Men and Mm -hmm. the fact that he cannot bring himself to stop being Cyclops. And we'll see a lot more of the fallout of that as the series goes on. Uh, Issue number 198, like you mentioned earlier, that was Life Death 2. We already dedicated a full episode to that, so we're going to move straight on to issue number 199. 199 follows two parallel stories. I mentioned before the parallels that this arc is building between Rachel Summers and Magneto, and those are the two characters we're going to be following right here. So Cyclops is back with the X-Men, which means we get a couple scenes of fun with ricochets in the danger room. I gotta say, seeing Scott back in the danger room is a little heartwarming. I mean, as much as he's been unable to ever fully quit the team for more than a few issues, it's always good to see him back. We also get another of a sort of scene that we've been seeing a lot lately, which is Scott and Rachel just utterly failing to effectively communicate. Yeah, she's coming to talk to him. They had planned to meet up and talk about stuff. And at that point, 
he gets called into uh, the principal's office, which is to say the danger room booth by Moira McTaggart to talk about something important and sort of apologizes and shuffles off, leaving Rachel somewhat sad and mopey, which is a state she spends a lot of time in. Because she absolutely won't tell him why she needs to talk to him or that it's important. And well, also you get the impression he's a little scared to talk to her. He may or may not know who she is, but he definitely knows that something is weird and something is awkward. She's from the future. She looks a lot like his dead girlfriend. It's hard for him to not know for sure, it's true. And what he finds out from Mara is that Professor Xavier is dying. Yeah, she says that, you know, Xavier had been healed after he was mugged, but that healing necessitated him really taking it easy, which he has not been doing because since he is, you know, in an X-Men comic, stuff keeps happening. He has to keep using his powers and exerting himself. Well, and he's insisted on staying field leader for no particularly good reason. And Moira says, and I think that's why he brought Magneto, because I think he's planning to try to finish everything he can and then have Magneto take over the school. Now, remember, Cyclops hasn't been with the X-Men, so he hasn't really seen much of the new improved Magneto. Like, I mean, his last contact with Magneto was as a villain. And he also is having a lot of trouble believing what's going on with Professor Xavier, which sounds kind of mean, but it's worth noting that the scenario that's actually going on here, that Xavier has been really sick and hiding it for a really long time and not telling anyone he's dying is exactly the lie that he told the X-Men the first time he faked his own death. Oh man, back in the Silver Age with the changeling and stuff? Right, there's a degree of healthy skepticism here. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rachel's not doing so hot herself. She actually heads back to uh, the Grey's hometown, where she grew up in her timeline, as well as it being Jean Grey's hometown in this timeline. Because she is the saddest character ever, literally her favorite thing to do is go and basically lurk around the fringes of the life of her alternate universe family. And uh, she starts having sort of these, these memories and flashbacks of what came before. And some of them are memories of her own early life in her timeline with her parents, and some of them are her imagination based on what she's read from the Dark Phoenix files. Yeah, so we see a bit of what actually happened that we read in the Dark Phoenix saga, but we also see a Scott and a Jean from her timeline that did stay together and that did have her as a child sort of looking at the future with hope and a bit of trepidation, but overall just putting all of their faith and dreams into their daughter Rachel. It's really rough, man. I mean, I know that terrible stuff keeps happening to Rachel and it keeps sort of wallowing in her misery, but I find it really personally affecting. No, it is really personally affecting. I just, the extent to which I feel like, and I mean, coming out of Longshot too, the extent to which there is this sense of soaring optimism always leads to crushing despair in X-Men is, is kind of driven home hard here. There's something else here that I find interesting that's not so much about its emotional resonance as about its chronological resonance, and that is that we get a window into what might be another timeline split between Rachel's original timeline, the Days of Future Past timeline, and 616, and that's the point where Jean's parents reject her when she comes home as Dark Phoenix. Right. It's implied that one of the reasons that the timeline went differently was that in Rachel's timeline, uh, Jean's parents were a bit more accepting of her instead of casting her out like it was the exorcist and so she was able to master the powers of the phoenix and that's how she survived what rachel ultimately decides to do she finds the holoempathic crystal that the shiar gave jean's parents after jean died yeah and that's the crystal that sort of contains an imprint of jean's personality so they could get a feel for her even though she was gone of her memories of her essence and as we will learn in this issue some of the phoenix force and so rachel decides you know what this timeline is not going in a good direction either. There's anti-mutant sentiment. There's the beyonder. And there's the fact that my mother's name has been drugged through the mud by what happened in this timeline. And her legacy is basically sitting in a knickknack on a shelf. And so she takes on the name, the powers, and really everything she can of the Phoenix. 
we mentioned this, I think, in the Asgardian Wars, the first time she shows up in that costume. That appears here for the first time, just basically in a telepathic form, in this huge explosion of light. And it occurs to me, because this is like late at night, that the Greys must be really heavy sleepers. Or maybe they're still out. They were out before. It's hard to say. It's this very powerful scene as she just, you know, vows to live up to her mother's legacy to what it should have been, and then collapses. Speaking of powerful scenes, intense moments, and lives of tragedy, the parallel story we're seeing involves Kitty Pride and Magneto at the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, and this would have been, I think, before the current Holocaust Museum existed. The way this event is working is that every day, every year on Remembrance Day, um, survivors and their families go up and say, hey, this is a person I was never able to find who my family lost track of during the Holocaust. Does anybody know him or her? Kitty actually goes up to ask about a great aunt of hers, a woman named Shava. At that point, a couple of elderly survivors show up and say, we knew her. And Magnus, we knew you as well. You were the one that protected us in the Holocaust, in those camps. And damn, you look good. And so this is the point where we learn that Magneto, I mean, this guy was a hero. As much as, as many horrible things as he's done in this period, he was a hero. And that's the only Magnus that this elderly couple remembers. We've been learning that Magneto is more complex than he looks in terms of backstory and motivation. And here we're learning that he's more complex in terms of actions. And so as he's sort of demurring, saying, hey, I was I was no hero. I was just doing what I had to at that point. Freedom Force attacks. So who's Freedom Force? Freedom Force is basically the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but they're working for the government. What we saw happen earlier this issue was Val Cooper, who, as you may recall, is a, a government lady who works for the government doing government things, coming home only to confront a perfect doppelganger of herself. This, as it turns out, is Mystique. And what Mystique says is basically, okay, look, so I am a hella super hardcore criminal. I hang with a lot of hella super hardcore criminals. Life is getting kind of hard for us with this anti-mutant sentiment. Why don't you hire us and we'll hunt down Magneto for you? And what Val says is, okay, two parts to the deal. One, like you said, Rachel, your first task is to capture Magneto. And two, if any of your team ever breaks the rules we set out, then your whole team, you're all outlaws again. And they lasted a surprisingly long time. At this point, this is in fact their first mission, and they've decided that the best way to capture Magneto is at a Holocaust memorial, which also really effectively sets them up as total douchebags. Like, who does that? Magneto doesn't really resist. He does briefly, but it becomes very obvious that Freedom Force, being as how they are super evil, don't really care about collateral damage, and he just stands down and lets them arrest him. Even after the X-Men have successfully defeated Freedom Force. And that leads into issue 200, The Trial of Magneto. Now this is a double-sized issue. X-Men did double-sized issues whenever it could, but honestly, this one totally earns it. It's one of my favorite issues of this entire part of the run. Yeah, this feels like a season finale. On one hand, it's a really intense legal drama. On the other hand, it's the X-Men fighting desperately around the planet as this is going on. It really changes the status quo. So for the setup to this, I think maybe we should turn it over to Neil Conan of NPR Claremont pulls a couple of actual NPR reporters into X-Men periodically. Neil Conan is one of them, and this issue is, is framed by his reporting, which does a great job of not only providing narration, but also of really solidly establishing what a big deal Magneto's trial is on the international stage. I should add that while we are comfortable assigning voices to fictional characters, Neil Conan is a real person with a real voice, so we're not even going to try to go there. This week, in Paris, France, a most extraordinary man goes on trial before a special tribunal of the International Court of Justice, charged with crimes against humanity. To many, he is the epitome of evil, the greatest fiend since Adolf Hitler. Others, though, consider him both liberator and hero. He is the self-styled master of magnetism. His name is Magneto. 
His origin is unknown, but from his initial appearance at America's Cape Citadel Missile Base, he championed the cause of Homo Superior, more commonly referred to as mutants, that offshoot of the human species possessing extraordinary physical and mental abilities. But years ago, he paid a heavy price. At the hands of a creature called Mutant Alpha, he was reduced to infancy and forced to begin his life anew. Really quick aside, can you imagine having to, like, read this as the news? I feel like if you're doing news in the Marvel Universe, this ain't no thing. Anyway. His oft-proclaimed goal was the conquest of Earth, his rationale being that this was the only way mutant kind could protect itself from extermination. Invariably, in the past, he was opposed by a team of mutants known as the X-Men, but recently they seemed to have formed an alliance. And when he was finally apprehended at the National Holocaust Center in Washington, D.C., it was by the government's newly established action team, Freedom Force. Normally, the World Court sits in The Hague, but since this is a criminal proceeding, of a type not seen since the Nuremberg Tribunals that followed World War II, it was decided to shift venues from the Netherlands to Paris' historic Palais de Justice, on the Ile de la Cité, only a block from Notre Dame Cathedral. There will be no jury, and the five judges have been drawn from the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, France, Great Britain, the People's Republic of China, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Prosecuting the case is England's Attorney General, Sir James Jaspers. Defense counsel is Israel's ambassador to Britain, Gabriel Haller, assisted by American scholar and educator, one of the foremost experts in human genetic mutation, Charles Xavier. Feelings are already running high and the mood is ugly. There have been daily protests, prompting some of the heaviest security measures ever seen. As the trial progresses, the impression here is tension will continue to grow, and the situation become increasingly more dangerous. This is Neil Conan, National Public Radio, reporting. One of the things I think that opening emphasizes is that Magneto's really not the only one on trial. This is kind of the X-Men on trial, and that's only going to accelerate over the course of the issue. And what's more, this is the entire world watching. We really get a sense of the global scale of this, and it makes sense. Magneto is probably the biggest example of the danger of mutants that the world has ever seen across the world. Now, there is one dude in that intro who we've not met before. We know Gabrielle Haller. We've seen her before. We know Xavier, obviously. And that is James Jaspers. James Jaspers is, according to this, currently Britain's attorney general. If you had been following Marvel UK at this point, you would know him as something very, very different. He is a reality warping mutant who managed to become prime minister and nearly destroy the UK and the world with something called the Jaspers Warp, which is going to figure very, very heavily into Captain Britain and Excalibur when we get to those. How he has ended up alive again and Attorney General is never actually determined, and they don't mention any of the other stuff in context of this issue, but yeah, Sir James Jaspers. Well, there right you there. go. <laughs> what we do find out is he's kind of a jerk, but speaking of jerks, we see a couple of characters we've seen before, those being Andrea and Andreas Strucker. The now, worst. Now, we've last seen them in Africa, where they basically shot Storm and almost killed her in the issues leading up to Life Death 2. Yeah, literally the last thing we saw these guys do was shoot Storm in the head for no reason, so you know they're bad news. There was an issue of Uncanny X-Men number 161, that was the flashback we talked about a little bit ago with New Mutants, where Professor Xavier met Gabriel Haller and Magneto in Israel. Now, the villain of that arc, very briefly, was Baron Strucker, who was a former Nazi and Hydra agent who had this thing called the Satan Claw, which I think is a great name for a weapon. Satan Claw. Yeah. Satan so Claw. They figure- Satan Claw. <laughs> They figure, all right, so all three of the people who were involved with our father's defeat are here. This is the perfect opportunity. We cannot pass this up. Satan Claw. I'm sorry. I just can't stop saying it. That's reasonable. I, it's, it sounds like a Street Fighter attack. It really does. Satan Claw. So, yeah, they decide to do so. Unfortunately for them, uh, Loki chooses just this moment to drop the X-Men and the New Mutants in their full Asgardian finery in the middle of Paris. And I love the editor's note here. If you want to know where both teams have been and what they've been up to, read New Mutants Special Edition number one and X-Men Annual number nine on sale now. 
Anne N., who will really and truly shoot Chris if he ever pulls a stupidest scheduling stunt as this again, and she really means it. Bang. And that is, in fact, Anne Nascenti, who was editing X-Men at the time. The rest of the issue, it's largely two plot threads, that being the trial itself, and also these terrorist attacks taking place around the world with graffiti signing, you know, Free Magneto signed the X-Men. Spoiler, that is the Strucker kids being their horrible Struckery selves. They're basically trying to stack the odds against Magneto in this trial by making mutants look bad. And they're trying to distract the X-Men so that when they eventually do decide to dive in and take out Xavier and Holler and Magneto... They won't have much opposition. Now, I really love this trial. I'm not much of a courtroom drama kind of guy, but it's all about the character of Magneto. It's all about looking at, you know, whether the crimes a person has committed can be excused if the person has fully and truly redeemed themselves or is on the road to doing so. So Jaspers and Holler give their opening statements, and Jaspers comes from a very, very clear and specific point. Yeah, he's basically saying that, you know, everyone's saying this is a witch hunt, that this guy's just fighting for what he believes in, but really, is that fight even necessary? Like, does he have any ground to stand on? Jaspers is saying he doesn't think there really is a problem. He doesn't know of any genocide or any places where it's illegal to be a mutant. He thinks that society, mainstream society itself, can solve any kind of bigotry, and what Magneto is doing is completely out of proportion to these minor problems that exist. And you gotta bear in mind at this point, things like the Sentinel program, which do exist are thoroughly off the books. So there's a degree of plausible deniability. They can say, oh, you know, we didn't set out to do this. That was a rogue element. And Jasper speaks very convincingly because that's kind of his thing. It's what he does. And Gabrielle Holler is arguing from a different standpoint. She's not trying to say Magneto didn't do terrible things, but she is arguing that his motives matter significantly. But more importantly, at this point, she is arguing uh, his crimes pre-second infancy be stricken from the record. When Mutant Alpha de-aged him to an infant, and then Eric the Red aged him back up to an adult, that after that, it was kind of like being born again, and that should really be the starting point of this Magneto. Well, it was also specifically like being killed, which is the ultimate price that the court could assign him for any of his crimes, that he has essentially already died for the stuff he committed before that point. It also answers a question that we get a ton. How can Magneto still be alive and as young as he is in a Holocaust survivor. Holler actually says, you know, it's established beyond question that Magneto was an inmate at Auschwitz as an adolescent. He should therefore be nearly 60 years old, yet expert medical testimony will show he is now biologically a man in his early 30s. So there you go. So while all this is going on, the X-Men are doing their best to stop further terrorist attacks. They start to realize the pattern of what's being attacked and get there before the attackers, but all any bystanders see are the X-Men diving into a situation like, you know, a tourist boat or a hospital or whatever, and all of a sudden everything going to hell. So it looks very much like, in fact, the X-Men are the perpetrators, which is exactly what the Strucker twins want to get across. Strucker twins is such a tongue twister. It really is. Do it five times fast. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the X-Mansion... Madeline is alone. She is very pregnant at this point. Her pregnancy has progressed really fast. She is alone in the mansion, and she is surprised by space bird princess in exile Lalandra and a space pirate corsair who have shown up to find dying Xavier because Lalandra's got a psychic link with him. She knows what's up. And they're like, yeah, we're going to grab him. We've got tech on the star jammer. We can totally save his life. Oh, he's not here. Yeah. Now, this is all news to Madeline. She's like, wait, the professor's in trouble? And why are you here? What's going on? Uh, they left. They're in Paris. And Cyclops hasn't called. We find that out about then, too, that some of the others have called in to check in and let her know they're okay, but he has been so neck-deep in X-Men stuff, he just hasn't even thought to phone home. So Corsair and Lalandra, they say, well, we don't have a lot of time, and we'll find out a little bit more why that is soon, which is that, you know, they're in exile. They don't have a lot of tech right now, so they've been using this Stargate that they have commandeered temporarily in uh, Shi'ar-controlled space. So they just, at that point, disappear again, head over to Paris, 
and Madeline is sort of still like, huh, that was weird, and I'm going into labor. As if there wasn't enough high-drama, high-stakes stuff going on, Scott's wife is in the process of starting to give birth. Meanwhile, back in Paris, the X-Men are watching the demonstrators who have become more and more numerous and more and more loud, and what we discover at this point is that while there's a lot of anti-mutant sentiment, the most vocal and largest block at this point are, are pro-mutant protesters. This is briefly confusing because Kitty can't quite see, and at this point she realizes, wait a minute, I used to be able to see so much better. I, do I need glasses? I'm an X-Man, this isn't fair. And she totally has a, a tiny teenage crisis in the middle of this massive globe-spanning event, which is really lovely. I lo Those moments are so good. So the attacks are continuing, the trial is continuing, and I actually really want to read uh, Magneto sort of speaking up for himself. I appreciate that you want to do that, but before you do, I'd like to take a moment to make fun of his outfit. Okay, let's make fun of Magneto's outfit. So Magneto's being a good guy now, right? And he's he got arrested in a suit, dressed like a normal person. But at the trial, he is wearing the stupidest damn costume I have ever seen. He's going to keep wearing it for a really long time, which I guess is him trying to be a superhero. But it's like this black sleeveless unitard with an enormous M with an accidental crotch arrow effect. And like this purple cape and gloves. And I can't understand why would you allow your client to wear this to his trial? I have no answers like, to these he questions. he owns suits. It's not like it's what they arrested him in. He got or made this outfit while in custody, specifically to wear in an international court. <laughs> what the hell, Magneto? Well, Consider your choices. Anyway, so he's wearing this outfit, and what's being discussed in the trial is something he did in X-Men number 150, which was to basically hold a Russian naval fleet hostage to say, you know, disarm or I'm going to kill everybody. He destroyed a town, although he let everyone evacuate first. So he's owning up to it. And the court is like, well, how do you justify that with who you're saying you want to be? And Magneto responds... My goal has not changed, but my methods have. My dream from the start has been the protection and preservation of my own kind, mutants. To spare them the fate my family suffered in Auschwitz. And do not tell me such a thing cannot happen again, because that is a lie. You humans slaughter each other because of the color of your skin, or your faith, or your politics, or for no reason at all. Too many of you hate as easily as you draw breath. What's to prevent you adding us to that list? I thought I could impose sanity from above, through conquest, but there are too many of you. So I decided I must try another way. I am the reason mutants are unjustly feared. That is why I am here. Why I will abide by the court's decision. My hope is to make the world understand the reasons for my being. But most of all, to punish me for my crimes, and no longer my people. Whatever my fate, you must still face the reality presented by our, mutants, existence. You cannot wish us away. You cannot ignore us. We, Homo sapiens superior, are your children. We are the next generation of humanity. What kind of parent fears his progeny, tries to murder them? Is this the legacy you wish to leave? I have seen the error of my ways. Can you say the same? Stupid costume aside, I really love the way John Romita Jr. draws Magneto. He's still got that scary look to him, but he's also just so respectable. I mean, that's a word that's often used in a very derisive way, but he just, he looks he's, like somebody... He's grave and he's very collected and he has the world's fiercest eyebrows. Yes. They are so amazing. They are such good eyebrows. I dream of someday having eyebrows that fierce. Now, around this time, that's when the Struckers, with the X-Men still distracted by one of these terrorist attacks, decide to make their move. They lure the X-Men into stopping an attack across town. 
so that they can bust into the courtroom unopposed. The Struckers, in addition to being hella jerks, uh, have superpowers. They are basically the evil Wonder Twins. Yeah, so whenever they're in physical contact, um, they can fire beams of force and disintegration. Interestingly enough, when Andrea later died in the Marvel Universe, Andreas made a sword with her skin as its hilt so he could always be in contact with her and still use the powers. Which is messed up. They attack, and the X-Men manage to take them down. And so the courtroom is just in shambles, the floor collapses, there's damage everywhere. And we see Sir James Jasper's first-class dick and uh, retconned reality warper standing over Andrea Strucker after she's been basically taken down with a rock in his hand about to brain her. And Magneto is the one who stops him. And the judge is watching all of this as it occurs. One of the judge, the, the lead judge. I, there's got to be a term for it. The boss judge? Judge boss, yes. I like boss judge better. Like Like, boss hog? No. Well, fair enough. So, yeah, and the twins start to escape during this and actually burst through a wall and flood the tunnel. So everyone is almost dying at this point. And Magneto, instead of pursuing the Struckers, saves Charles Xavier. And then the uh, boss judge slaps the shit out of James Jaspers, and it is really satisfying. Obviously, the trial has fallen the hell apart. But the judge says she's pretty much seen enough, and at this point, the fate of mutants, the fate of Magneto, is just going to be decided by the public will. Yeah, Magneto himself is free, and the charges are dropped. Which is good, because Charles Xavier is dying. You know, the book's been teasing it, but honestly, I remember when I was reading this the first time, I did not expect it to follow through, but sure enough, Xavier is at death's door. And Magneto's kneeling over him, saying, you know, what can I do? And Xavier basically says, hey, I have seen how you've changed. I have seen how you've grown, and no more was that shown than today. Lead the X-Men. And Magneto's like, no, I, th- they won't accept me, and, and above all, I'm not worthy of that, of that honor, especially after all I've done. Then you better fucking learn to be worthy. It's actually a really touching scene, all facetiousness aside. Yeah, he doesn't actually swear. Because Xavier, you know, he's known Magneto since they were young men. He's seen all the evil that Magneto can do, but he's also seen all the good. Mm-hmm. And seeing that he is willing to leave his dream in the hands of this man as he is probably about to die, it's really moving. Spoiler, Xavier does not actually die because the Starjammers swoop in just in time and carry him off, leaving again the X-Men with Magneto in Paris, waiting to see what happens next. And that basically ends this era of X-Men. Xavier is going to be gone for a long time, leaving Magneto in charge of the school and the X-Men and the New Mutants kind of on their own except for him. This defines an era of the X-Men and the X-Universe in multiple titles for a long time. This is also the arc and really the issue that starts the dissolution of Scott and Madeline's marriage, which is going to propel a whole lot of other stuff. Um, We're going to very soon be coming to X-Factor, aren't we? We are indeed. So uh, it's a really fitting, strong conclusion to that arc. I'm immensely satisfied with this issue. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful capstone to a really strong era of X-Men. So with that done, I believe we have some questions. All right, so Jason asks us via Patreon, is the Phoenix Force evil? Was everyone freaking out about it justifiable in Avengers vs. X-Men or just for story drama? Should they just have sent Rachel Summers out? Do you think the Phoenix Force will ever be redeemed, or will it always be this dark entity now? So I think this is really relevant, especially where we are right now, as Rachel Summers takes on the mantle of the Phoenix, because Rachel, she was a host for the Phoenix for a very long time, or at least part of it, and nothing bad ever really happened with that. I mean, you know, sometimes it looked like things were gonna go bad, but nothing apocalyptic. And even when Jean comes back from the dead and is merged with the Phoenix for a long time, things go really well for her too. It was really only later, after the Shi'ar tried to resurrect her again, that things got ugly. At the time when Avengers vs. X-Men started, there had really just been the Dark Phoenix saga as a hugely negative example. 
I think honestly what it comes down to is that the Dark Phoenix saga is what most people think of both in universe and out when they think of the Phoenix. So I think the Phoenix comes off as a lot more negative than it actually is. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the characters in the Marvel Universe are just as myopic when it comes to the Phoenix Force as a lot of readers are. Exactly, yeah. And that's especially true when it comes to Rachel Summers' immensely long association with the Phoenix that nobody ever remembers and Avengers vs. X-Men barely touched on. The fact is, she was a far better Phoenix host than Jean ever was, but everybody forgets that because she's a much less prominent character, and that's a damn shame. GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, I saw on Twitter that you'd consider sponsorship for Marvel a conflict of interest, but I was wondering if you could flesh that out more. It's not unusual for critics to be sponsored by the industries or companies they review. Most newspaper movie reviews appear alongside ads for the movies. Siskel and Ebert, the show, was even owned by Disney at one point, I think. Is there something about your situation that's different from those that I'm missing? There is. There are a lot of things, actually, that are different. The first is that most of the shows and situations you're talking about are part of larger networks. Siskel and Ebert were owned by Disney, but they appeared on channels and in contexts where they did not exclusively review Disney movies. We do one thing, where we talk about one thing, and that's the X-Men owned by one company. We are also not Siskel and Ebert. We are not famous. We do not have the kind of platform that made those guys relatively untouchable as critics. And being dependent on the publisher who produces the work that we review... And, and when, I, when I talk about sponsorship, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about things like review copies. That would be fine. That would be great. We should actually probably get in touch about, with Marvel <laughs> about that at some point. I'm talking about the kind of sponsorship that would make us in any way dependent on them. Because in that situation, there's really not an ethical way to review and analyze material. And while we love a lot of what we're talking about, and you know, I think we tend to be very, very positively inflected reviewers, especially on the podcast, having the freedom to say whatever we want and not having to worry about whether it's going to cause someone who helps us keep on the air to pull that support is really important. So talking about the people that do support us, which is to say our Patreon supporters, certain tiers of pledges from our Patreon supporters get them a number of different rewards, and one of those is being thanked by various fictional entities within the Marvel Universe. So I'm going to turn it over to the angry narrator. At what price, Aaron Dawson? The battle may be yours, but is it worth the life of Michael Messiah in this timeline and who knows how many others? From there, I will hand it over to uh, supervillain Andreas Strucker. Really, dude? (laughs) Magneto, for far too long have your crimes against our father, the Baron Strucker, gone unpunished. And also the fathers of Oscar Shogren, Baron Shogren, and of Breck Young, Baron Young. My sister Andrea and I shall now show you the price of defying barons with superpowered children. Despair and disintegration. Now, die! A lot of barons running around there. So many barons, you'd be surprised. And with that wrapped up, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, who is the producer of the Geek Remix, trilogy of pop culture mashup albums, and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. And check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, from companion posts and essays to fan art and X-Men Evolution reviews by Rachel. This podcast is, as we said, completely listener-supported, and it is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters named and otherwise. Thank you, guys. If you want to become one of those Patreon supporters, check out the link at the top of our website. And if you're going to be at NorwestCon next week, be sure to find Rachel. She's on something like seven panels talking about podcasting, comics, and a lot more. Meanwhile, tune in here for our second-ever convention special, our Emerald City Comic-Con Creator Roundtable. Roundtable.